This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. It is Saturday, and good morning and welcome to America's Roundtable. We're delighted to welcome once again John Yu, a great American and blessed with a brilliant mind. Very few leaders can clearly articulate the significance of America's constitutional principles and weave its importance to the vital issues we face today. He has worked in all three branches of government, notably as Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Department of Justice under President George W. Bush, where he worked on national security and terrorism issues after the September 11 attacks. John Yu is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law and Faculty Director of Public Law and Policy Program at the University of California at Berkeley, and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He also served as General Counsel of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee under its chairman, Orrin Hatch of Utah, and a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. And uh, in fact, on this note, uh, we want to extend a special welcome to John. Welcome once again. It's great to have you on America's Roundtable. Welcome, John. Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you again, Joel and Natasha. Well, John, this past week, President Joe Biden delivered the State of the Union Address, the annual speech, which was delivered in the House chamber before a joint session of Congress. And the Wall Street Journal's editorial board responded by saying, and I quote, Mr. Biden has contributed to the polarization with the partisan agenda of his first two years after he campaigned as a unifier. He jammed through Congress trillions of dollars in new spending with narrow majorities. His administration uses regulation to impose the progressive prior priorities of racial division and climate alarmism, often without proper legal authority. The Supreme Court rebuked him on vaccine mandates and a national eviction moratorium, and it will likely do so again on student loan forgiveness, unquote. Now, John, there was very little said on the issue of national security and how to address the concerns of China's brazen attempt to surveil American broad daylight and hovering around U.S. military sites and when looking at Russian aggression on the European continent. And in fact, on the U.S. military shooting down what U.S. officials called a Chinese surveillance balloon off the coast of South Carolina on February 4, 2023, this is what President Biden mentioned in the State of the Union address, and I quote, as we made clear last week, if China threatens our sovereignty, we will act to protect our country, unquote. 
John, in light of the national security concerns we face, including the open U.S. southern border, economic challenges, what were your thoughts when you heard President Biden's speech? Did he address the core concerns of America? And what grade would you give the president on his speech? I have to say, no, I don't think that he's on top of the challenges that are facing the country. I, For example, I think a lot of the uh, setbacks we're seeing are a result of something that went completely unmentioned, was our disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think if we don't withdraw from Afghanistan in such a haphazard, disastrous way, I'm not sure Vladimir Putin invades Ukraine. Mm. I'm not sure China continues pressing uh, its aggressive actions with not just with balloons, but with its navy in the South China Sea, uh, its efforts to turn our allies against us and Asia. I, I can see why, if you look at the polling, a majority of Americans don't want Joe Biden to run for re-election. A uh, majority of Americans disapprove of his performance as president. Why? I think not just foreign policy, but as you mentioned, he campaigned two years ago that he would be a moderate, that he would try to bring the country together, try to heal divisions. And as you say, when you look at domestic policy, he has tried to drive forward an extreme agenda, which clearly a majority of Americans don't support, because if they did, uh, he would not have to resort to these extraordinary executive actions, executive orders, as you mentioned, trying to cancel student loan debt, trying to force, force everyone to get vaccination, trying to stop evictions. If a majority of Americans support that, then he should go to Congress and ask for legislation. Instead, he claimed powers that he didn't have, and he's suffered defeat after defeat at the Supreme Court. I think that shows, if anything does, that he's gone out so far on a limb to press this progressive agenda that he's lost the support of the middle of the country. John, on Oversight Committee in Congress, as a regular featured guest on Fox News, you were recently on a program which highlighted America's COVID responses program, uh, government overspending, the forced ma- vaccine mandates, the U.S. southern border crisis, immigration laws, and the Biden administration's insistence on wiping out student loan debt. Uh, John, you mentioned that the Biden administration has refused to pursue common sense policies, instead pushing its ideological beliefs, a progressive agenda, unlike what we have ever seen before, and which is contrary to what the vast majority of Americans believe in. And now House Republicans on Capitol Hill are leading investigations and holding hearings on a myriad of issues. Uh, John, as one who used to help in running oversight committees, what is your advice to members of Congress, specifically members of the House of Representatives, as they address a plethora of important issues? And from your perspective, what should be the top priorities for the American people? I'm glad you asked me that, Natasha, because it also uh, forces me to answer part of the question that I didn't answer from Joel, too, (laughs) which is he mentioned the border. And some people may wonder, why is there so much talk about the border? Why is it so important? And first, it's a great example, unfortunately, great example of how this administration puts ideology ahead of common sense and the policies most Americans support. Uh, We're a sovereign country, and sovereign countries control their borders. I think a majority of Americans don't like what's happening along the 
southern border where you have more than 2 million people now a year crossing the border illegally. President Trump, this is not like a natural disaster. The Trump administration, through a variety of policies, agree or disagree with President Trump, he did succeed in controlling the southern border and stopping the huge uh, flows of illegal immigration across the border. But the Biden administration, I think, captured by this woke ideology, uh, you know, born in our schools, in our universities, believes that borders are racist, believes that our immigration laws are racist, and they're clearly not enforcing them. They're clearly not enforcing them. That's an example. I think the American people see uh, the videos, they hear the numbers, and I think they realize this president, or at least his administration, uh, is not committed to following a common sense policy at the border that could solve this problem that had been pursued for many years before, and instead is just given into progressive ideology at great harm to the country. Right. Uh, John, the topic of classified documents in the possession of President Biden, former President Trump, and former Vice President Pence have made headline news. The FBI raid on former President Trump's residence in Florida appeared in real time and was broadcasted on television media channels. Uh, the Hill recently reported, and I quote, Congressional leaders for weeks have been calling on the Biden administration and law enforcement officials to provide more information about the documents to Congress. Figures such as Senators Marco Rubio and Mark Warner have chastised the Biden administration for what they say is opaqueness on the documents. Unquote. Uh, John, you have raised concerns about classified documents kept in unsecured locations and its impact on national security. In fact, you raised concerns about the private email server at Mrs. Clinton's home when she sent and received classified materials. John, firstly, was there a double standard by the Biden administration in how it treated former President Trump? And what should be done in this area of ensuring that the rule of law is upheld? And secondly, can you give us more clarity on what exact criteria should be applied for the materials to be considered classified versus unclassified? And what conditions have to be met in order for the president to declassify the documents? Because it's obvious that only President Trump had authority to declassify the documents and not the Vice President Clinton, Biden or Pence. As you can see, I'm going to keep doing this answering your question from two questions ago. <laughs> but <laughs> what, what, what can Congress do? So the most important thing for Congress to do in this classified documents controversy is to keep at the forefront its difference from what the executive branch does. Uh, only the executive branch enforces the law. Only uh, the Justice Department conducts investigations and brings prosecutions for violating the classified information statutes. What Congress can do is put the record out in public to get the record straight, to question and find out how the Justice Department is making its decisions so that we, the voters, in the next elections in 2024, can hold uh, the Biden administration and the Attorney General, uh, Merrick Garland, accountable for their decisions. Mm -hmm. What should they focus on is the, the <clears throat> all these issues you've just raised, Natasha. The most important, the fundamental issue here is that the rule of law in our country demands that same cases be treated, treated in the same way. Mm. 
if you have President Biden and President Trump, both have, and, and Vice President Michael Pence and Hillary Clinton all have classified documents that they shouldn't have, then they should be investigated in the same way. And the prosecutorial decisions should treat them in the same way. If you look at it that way, I think the country would be outraged to see a prosecution of former President Trump compared to President Biden and Hillary Clinton. President Biden's not going to be prosecuted. I, I, I have no illusions about that. No one should. But Hillary Clinton, whose, I think, offense was far worse than any of these other examples, Hillary Clinton created her own computer network through which was unsecured, which would which was not classified, which any intelligence service of our arrivals could easily have broken into. And then she funneled thousands and thousands of her emails as Secretary of State through it. A lot of those emails are going to involve classified information. So we're not talking about one or a hundred. We're potentially talking about, you know, maybe thousands of emails that were sensitive, classified, would have been an advantage to our rivals to see. She was not prosecuted. She was investigated, but she was not prosecuted. If she's not prosecuted, but then you see prosecution of Trump and not a prosecution of Biden, then the American people are going to say, oh, you just don't get prosecuted when you're a Democrat and you get prosecuted when you're a Republican. Mm. That fundamentally undermines the rule of law in our country and will erode the integrity of the justice system. And so that's something that the oversight committees in the House can really bring a spotlight to and attention to. So even though they're going to have to fight with the executive branch to get access to these classified documents, to learn what's going on in, the, in these investigations, uh, they must. And let me also add just one last thing. President Biden could really help all this by declassifying all these documents so that the American people can see whether there was actually any national security harm that might have occurred because of these documents being held uh, outside government facilities. Indeed. Mm -hmm. And uh, John, we've been following sort of this uh, tit for tat between the tech industry and members of Congress on the issues of Section 230. And there is a significant case which will be taken up by the U.S. Supreme Court this month. The outcome of the Google case, which is to be argued on February the 21st, may have a profound impact on the tech industry and perhaps the Internet itself. Now, Section 230 shields big tech companies like Google, Facebook owner Meta, and others from legal liability for most of the content users post on their sites. And in a recent USA Today piece, the report stated that companies like Google and Facebook owner Meta, among others, say that if the court significantly limits Section 230, it could lead to a proliferation of objectionable content on some sites and knee-jerk removal of content on others. From your perspective, John, what would be the ideal outcome and how do you think justices uh, such as Justice Clarence Thomas and perhaps others may weigh in on this important and, and perhaps most prominent case of our time? Joe, this is very complicated. There's actually uh, two different kinds of issues going on here. One, as you said, is before the Supreme Court now, there will be oral arguments and we'll see a decision from the court by the end of June. There's a second, even more important case lurking in the background behind this one that's currently also at the Supreme Court that the court's deciding whether to hear. <clears throat> so the first case is uh, not as important as the second case, but it does raise some of the same issues. So as you said, Section 230 
uh, immunizes internet providers from being sued for what other parties, other people say on their websites. So for example, it would mean Facebook is not liable because someone uses their Facebook page to say uh, crazy things. As long as Facebook, this is the deal in the statute, Facebook right, has some kind of system for moderating content to keep off basically offensive material, material that children shouldn't see. The claim in this first case is what about something the statute, the Congress didn't really know about back when it wrote the law, which is what about the algorithms? So when you look at a YouTube video and then it suggests all these other videos for you to see, is that covered by this immunity or not? That's completely open. That's just an open question. We don't know. So far, the uh, and this is why this is raises this important other question. The social media companies have been acting with impunity. Mm. Uh, they've used this immunity to engage in all kinds of policies, which we now know, thanks to Elon Musk and the Twitter files, we now know that the social media companies have been suppressing views and uh, arguments based on their ideology, which really offends most Americans' views about the First Amendment. The second case that's coming up behind, which is going to be even more important, is the social media companies, I think rightly, can say, well, we're not the government. <clears throat> we don't have to obey the First Amendment. We, you know, I can discriminate on my front yard. I don't have to have let any, say, conservatives put signs on my front yard if I don't like it. Why aren't social media companies the same way? But Texas and a few other states have passed laws saying, no, if you're going to do business in our state, then you have to treat everybody the same. No picking Democrats over Republicans or Trump Biden over Trump or Trump over Clinton. You have to be free and fair in who you let post on your social media. That's the more important question that's following right behind this Section 230 case. And as you say, Joe, I agree, this will be one of the most fundamental legal decisions involving big tech and this you know, internet digital revolution we're living through right now uh, in many years. Right. This reminds me, John, of what happened with uh, with actually big tech hiding the fact that classified materials were found at the residence of Joe Biden in Delaware and the Washington-based think tank until after the midterm elections, while also hiding information about Hunter Biden's laptop and corruption, which was revealed only after the 2020 presidential elections. So they have power to sway elections. I mean, therefore, they have to, this has to be regulated. Well, I actually think there's an even worse scandal about or abuse of this power was, yes, the Hunter Biden laptop story. Mm. We now know that it was all true. Right, exactly. <laughs> Hunter Biden is right. actually out now suing people for stealing his laptop and publishing his private information, which is you couldn't have a better concession and admission now that it was his. Because if it wasn't his, you can't sue people for Absolutely. publishing fake information. Right. So he's basically made theirs. Yeah. But nevertheless, uh, you know, social media went ahead and tried to suppress the story in the New York Post back during October, late, I think it was early October of 2020 about this laptop and tried to prevent people from finding stories about it, tried to pull the stories down, could not have a better example of how big tech intervened mm. 
in our, our politics may have changed the outcome of the election. Right. And I don't think they should be allowed to get away with it. I mean, they they now if they want to do that, mm-hmm. I guess they can, but not if they're receiving all this, as Joel's point out, this immunity from being sued that's provided by the government. Um, they should should not be allowed to coordinate with the government in the way they have. The more they coordinate with the government, then the more they're subject to the First Amendment. John, can you give us more clarity on what exact criteria should be applied for the materials to be considered classified versus unclassified? And what conditions have to be met in order for the president to declassify the documents? Yes, that's a, that is an important distinction uh, between Biden and the Biden and Trump cases, and even the Hillary Clinton cases, because uh, President, all classification of any document ultimately stems from the president. Uh, it's the president's authority that created the whole system of classification. Actually, it's not done by Congress. Now, Congress makes it a crime to leak important national defense information, but it is the president who creates classifications and the president can declassify any document that he wants. So the question with the Trump case, I mean, President Trump has raised this as a defense, is I declassified all those documents at Mar-a-Lago. His problem is that he needs to show proof that he actually did it. You know, you, I don't think you can just imagine that you declassified the documents. You want to record it in some way. But if he did, it's up to him. It is not, it's not, it's not revealed. If, if, if there's some uh, rule he had issued that said, anytime I take a document to Mar-a-Lago, it's automatically declassified. That's fine. Then he's committed, I would say, he's not, he, there's no, there, there is impossible for him to have committed a crime then. The problem with Joe Biden is that the many of the documents he has are not from when he's been president. They've been from when he was a senator. And you have to ask, how did he get those documents in the first place? Because having worked in the Senate as an aide, Senators, unlike the president, don't keep classified documents in their office and carry them around within the Senate mm-hmm. building. They have to go to a special room where all the classified documents are kept. How did he get the ones from when he was vice president? You know, again, how did he remove them? But he also doesn't have available the defense that President Trump would have that he could have declassified them. Senators can't declassify information. And in most cases, vice presidents can't either. And so this is why I cannot see. President Trump being prosecuted for these classified documents. And then it makes uh, me really worry because the Justice Department has, as you point out, Natasha and Joel from the beginning, made a big show of its investigation, you know, conducted a search in real time, uh, you know, appointed a special counsel. They made a big show of pursuing President Trump. If really wasn't the case that President Trump violated the law, I don't think I mean I'm more I just can't see them bringing this case now then they've done him great harm intentionally mm-hmm. uh, which they did not mm-hmm. do to Hillary Clinton or mm-hmm. Joe Biden Unfortunately. No doubt. John, Natasha and I have appreciated listening to your excellent mm. podcast, which you are co-hosting called The Three Whiskey Happy Hour. <laughs> now, I've got to mention that you know, <laughs> Natasha's got some interesting background here because oh. her family for some 300 years actually has been producing fine wine. Their, their cellar oh, goes man. back to 300 years ago. And they also have this wonderful uh, beverage called Rakia. <laughs> in, in oh, the I've had that. 
What? I have had that. <laughs> yes. And, and yes. let me tell you, that is some strong yeah. stuff. So Yeah, I was going to so, say, hey, I've had it, but luckily I don't have to have it oh, again. Oh, really? <laughs> This right. is strong. It's like 60% or something. Well, let me make this commitment. If you, yeah, if you send us a bottle, we will all drink it on the Three Whiskey Happy Hour and discuss its, uh, discuss its and, qualities and, on, on our show. I'll take your offer. Yeah, we'd love to. <laughs> well, in fact, we would just love to encourage our listeners to certainly seek out this podcast, The Three Whiskey Happy Hour. And John, this this is certainly a lively, informative, uh, with a tinge of great humor and very engaging. Where can our listeners go to listen to this podcast, The Three Whiskey Happy Hour? Oh, uh, yeah, you can find it over at the uh, Powerline blog which is its sponsor, or it's distributed also at the ricochet.com podcast network. And as you said, it's a lot of fun. It's I'm actually the liberal on the podcast. I'm, I'm with two much more conservative people <laughs> than me, Steve Hayward. And then our, our third uh, host is a mystery woman named Lucretia, <laughs> who is a college professor too, but wishes to be anonymous given the outrageous things she says on the podcast. <laughs> well, we'll certainly uh, enjoy this program and we'll continue to listen to it, John. We thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining us. Uh, Professor John Yu is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law and Faculty Director of Public Law and Policy Program at the University of California at Berkeley and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. John, thank you so much uh, for your time indeed. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Great to be with you guys again. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Laden Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable.